Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Nehemiah chapter 4, which you can find on page 400 in the Pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 4. Last week, Pastor Garrett helped finish up the rest of chapter 2, where Nehemiah was scouting out the condition of the wall to see what type of shape it was in. And he stressed for us that God is sovereign, and yet we should take action. And chapter 3 gives us a long record of the people who are beginning to build this wall. So-and-so and and their family are building this section, and this section, and this section. And we'll touch on that briefly. But this morning, I want to look at chapter 4, and we'll read all 23 verses. So Nehemiah chapter 4, and this begins to give us some of the opposition that's rising up in response to Nehemiah and the people of God as they rebuild this wall. Verse 1. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were all very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near, lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, In open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And he said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. 
And I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we've read your word and we look to study it now, we ask that you would speak through it so that we would be changed increasingly into your likeness. Our hope and our confidence would be built up so that you would be glorified and that we would live as your people in your land. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Carey is often known as the father of modern missions. He has a list of many great accomplishments and influenced India in a profound way. Even to this day, he's looked in pretty good light in India. But very few know of the type of opposition that he faced during his 41 years of ministry there. Let me give you a couple of them. William Carey was considered totally unqualified. His education, formal education, stopped at age 12, and he did not receive any more after that. He was rejected for ordination when he, first his, when he gave his first sermon, and it took him two more years before he was ordained. Many of his contemporaries rejected the notion that they were to be involved in world missions. Some said, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do that on his own. Carrie and his wife, Dorothy, lost three young children, and she could not cope with harsh life in India. And she lost her mind and was essentially confined to a room during most of their time there. And Carrie ultimately outlived two of his three wives. The British East India Company opposed having missionaries in India. And a fire destroyed years of his translation work. William Carey faced incredible challenges and opposition in fulfilling God's task. What caused a man like this to prevail? What enabled him to succeed? The question for us this morning is what can sustain us when the opposition becomes overwhelming, paralyzing, intimidating? How do you and I respond when we're faced with opposition? How do you respond when you're faced with opposition? Opposition can cause us to lose sight of God. It can cause us to lose sight of His power or His presence. And what we'll do is this morning, we'll look at how Nehemiah 4 addresses this very issue. Nehemiah and his brothers are facing incredible opposition from all sides. The Sumerians, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the Ashdodites, they are on literally every side. If you think of your favorite war movie, you think of one group on one side and another on the other, and one is overwhelmingly stronger, and they say, don't do what you're going to do or we'll get you. So this is the stage. This is what's happening here. And what we'll do is we'll look at Nehemiah, and there's three main ways that Nehemiah responds. But before we get there, we need to look at the type of opposition. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. Sanballat 
heard that we were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So what's taking place here is that there's mocking, and not just mocking, but taunting, and not just taunting, but intimidation. Look with me at verse 2. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria. So these people are behind him, and he's saying, don't build that wall. You're not possibly going to be able to do it. He's here to mock and taunt and intimidate God's people. Now look with me down to verse 7. Not only do they do that, but they begin to hear that the building continues to take place, and so they plot against them. Verse 8, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then look with me at verse 11. It says, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the enemies of Nehemiah are not just mocking and taunting and intimidating them, but they plot their attack and they ultimately want to kill them. They want to stop the work altogether. And as we consider this, you may not be up against an army and no one may be plotting your death, and yet we have opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted if you're living for Jesus. If you're following Jesus in this life, seeking to obey him, make disciples, share the love of Christ, evangelize your neighbors, you will face persecution, every single one of us. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's surprising about this verse is that when he, he says, when, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And you would think, if I'm living honorably, no one would speak of me as an evildoer. But he says, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll glorify God. The fact is, if you're following Jesus, living in an honorable manner, you will be called an evildoer. Here are some examples. Holding to the biblical truth about marriage will be considered bigoted. It already is. Sharing the gospel with others will be spreading intolerant propaganda. Christians will be increasingly shamed for holding to biblical truth that God made the world that all men are sinners, that there's only one way to this God. All others are lost. And this one way is Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. We will be persecuted for saying that sin is sin in our culture. We will be belittled for publicly holding to views that do not fit modern senses. Christian ministries and universities will suffer legislation that seek to undermine its autonomy, its funding, and its ability to fulfill the Great Commission. And this is to say nothing of the tens of thousands of Christians that are suffering around the world under constant threat of death and imprisonment for gathering like this, for opening the Bible that we get to do this morning. So how can we respond in faith to opposition? What does a faith-filled response look like? Well, Nehemiah and his brothers respond in three ways. And the first is this. It's in prayer. If you're familiar, if you've been with us in the series so far, you know that in chapter 1, most of the chapter is devoted to Nehemiah and his prayer. He hears the news, and he immediately turns to God in prayer. 
chapter 2, verse 4. As the king says, what do you want? Nehemiah turns and he prays to God. And now we get to verse 4 and 5. As Samballot and Tobiah mock and jeer and taunt, he turns to pray to God. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. What's happening here? Nehemiah is praying an imprecatory prayer. Essentially, he's saying, what these people are threatening of us make happen to them rather than to us. This is what he's praying. And yet, what ultimately is taking place is that Nehemiah is praying for justice. He wants God's justice to reign. Verse 5, do not cover their guilt. God, look at them. They're opposing your purposes and your plan. Judge them. Do not let guilt go unpunished. And that's how we ought to respond in the midst of opposition. We ought to pray. We ought to bring this before God. We ought to entrust that ultimately any opposition as we seek to live a faithful life in Christ is against not ultimately us, but is against our God. At the end of verse 5, it says, they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. It's not against me. It's against you, God, so you bring justice. So, it is an instinctual response for Nehemiah. Prayer is his instinct. We've seen that again and again. Before the king, he prays. Hearing the news, he prays. Opposition comes, he prays. It is his instinctual response. Is prayer your instinct? If you'd asked me what the instinct of a tiger is, I would say a tiger's instinct is to hunt and kill. And yet, there are people who keep tigers as pets. Tigers as pets. There was this man, a 66-year-old Canadian man, Norman, who was mauled to death by a 650-pound Siberian tiger. And now I'm no animal expert, but if you ask me to avoid that, don't keep a tiger as a pet. It's his instinct to hunt and kill. In the same way, is our instinct as God's people to immediately go to him in prayer, to trust him? Do we look to God in our situations? Or do we have this false sense of spirituality? Well, God knows what it is. Well, he, he, he knows. I don't need to pray. Or do we go to him? Well, he couldn't be concerned with this. It's much too small or it's much too big. Or do we go to him in prayer? And when we respond to opposition with prayer, what we do is we show that God is really in control. We looked at this last week. God is sovereign. He's in control. He does as he wishes. And yet, what we do, our prayers really make a difference. They really matter. They really make a difference in the world. The prayers that you pray in your prayer closet make a difference in this world. So Nehemiah responds with prayer. And second, he responds with prudent action. Look with me at verse 6. Not only do they pray, but they begin to build the wall. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So the wall was all joined together, and it reaches half of its height. And now look with me at verse 9. As the threats continue, 
In verse 9 it says, We prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Well, which is it, Nehemiah? Do we pray or do we set a guard? And it's yes. We pray and trust the Lord and we set a guard. And then let's continue. Verse 14 and 15. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So remember God's greatness. Remember that we serve a sovereign God. A God who sits in the heavens and laughs at his enemies in derision. Who's in control of all things, can make all things come to pass according to his will. And yet, fight for your brothers and your sisters and your wives and your daughters. Fight for all that you care about. Take action. This continues. 16, actually let's look at 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. The enemies heard that we found out, and yet it was God who frustrated their plan. These are not mutually exclusive, that God is in control and that we take prudent action to fulfill his purposes in this world. These are not mutually exclusive. They work together. They fit. God is in control. And yet our actions really do make a difference. Look with me at verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Everyone was ready and prepared for the attack that would take place. Everyone had one hand to build the wall and another hand on their sword or on their spear or it was strapped to their side. They were ready. Trusting God doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. Trusting God means we're ready. We're prepared. We take action. Nehemiah responds with prudent action to fulfill God's purposes. He doesn't just sit back and say, well, I'll just let go and let God. God can build the wall, couldn't he? Well, sure. And he's using you. Psalm 127 sums it up like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So our trust is not in builders and it's not in watchmen. And yet, there is an indispensable need for builders and watchmen in the midst of it all. Trusting God just means it doesn't happen in vain. And so as we do God's work in this world, we ought to trust him. And what might that be for you? Reaching your neighbors, evangelizing. At your workplace, there are people who may not have ever heard of Jesus, who have fallen into other things and have gone astray, and they need your help. Perhaps you run a nonprofit ministry that seeks to alleviate suffering in this world in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever it may be, perhaps you're passionate about orphans, domestic or abroad, whatever it may be, we are called to trust in the Lord and yet to take action in prayer and prudent action. There's a story about Hudson Taylor when he was on his way to China one of these times. He was a missionary to China and He was in the boat, 
and they had no wind, and so the captain had tried everything he could try. You know, they had gotten the sailors to row, and they were headed toward these reefs, and they were going to crash. And the, ta- the, the captain said, you know, we're just going to have to see how it turns out, because sure, we, we've done everything we can. And Hudson Taylor said, well, you haven't done everything. There's four of us Christians here on this boat. Me and three others will go down, and we'll pray and you let down the sail. Someone told me after the last service, I'm not a boat person. So it's not let down the sail, it's open the sail. So open the sail. And so the captain says, no, 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 you can't open the sail. There's no wind. You, know, you probably don't understand sailing. You need wind for sails to work. And Hudson Taylor says, we'll go down and we'll pray. Open the sail. And the captain says, no, there's no wind. I don't want to look foolish in front of my men. Hudson Taylor says, open the sail. We'll pray for the wind. And so they go down, and they pray, and sure enough, wind comes, and they make it to their destination. Trusting God and prayerful action are not contradictory. They're not mutually exclusive. They fit. That's the point of Nehemiah 4, that God has put it into the heart of Nehemiah, that God holds the heart of King Artaxerxes in his hand, moving it wherever he wills. Give Nehemiah letters. King Artaxerxes writes them. God is in control, and yet Nehemiah takes action. Nehemiah leads the charge. He goes back. He leaves the comforts of Susa. He's building. He's setting guards up. Prayerful action and God being in control are not mutually exclusive. God is in control. So, Nehemiah responds with prayer. He responds with prudent action. And third, he responds with cooperation with God's people. Look with me at chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a long record of those who are beginning to engage in the building of the wall. I would encourage you to read it when you get a chance later today. It's this family and his sons who build on this part of the wall, and this, so-and-so, and his family build this part of the wall, and so-and-so and his sons build this wall. It's this long record. And the only place that is unusual is in verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles will not stoop to serve the Lord. Everyone was involved, and that's the point of chapter 3. It's all hands on deck. Everyone is involved. There's an unusual unity and commitment taking place in rebuilding the wall. Even the blacksmiths and the perfumers are building the wall. Everyone's involved. There's an unusual commitment to rebuilding. Now look with me at chapter 4. Flip back to chapter 4 and we see in verse 19 and 20. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we need your help. Everyone needs to be involved in this work. We need all hands on deck. And yet, our God will fight for us. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. God's going to fight for us on, because of you coming and helping us. And so there is, in Nehemiah 3 and 4, this unusual unity and diversity of God's people coming together to fulfill God's purposes. And the way for us to understand this for us is this. Every single one of you, if you're a follower of Christ, are absolutely needed here in this body. We need you. 
whether you're two or 102, we need your help in rebuilding the wall. And it's not a literal wall, but it's ministering and building up this body of Christ. God is accomplishing his purposes in this world for his purposes, for his glory, through each and every single one of us. There is this united coming together of God's people to fulfill this work. Every single one of you is needed. We need to minister to one another, whether it's serving in a formal place here in this church or just ministering to those around you, listening, inviting people over, spending time with others, drawing them out. Perhaps you have gone through a struggle in your parenting or in your marriage or in your career where you can help someone else. We need every single one of you. Because even though God is sovereign, your prayer and your actions and your cooperation with the body of Christ is absolutely needed. Every single one of us is needed. We're all ministers. God is building up his church in and through each one of us. And Nehemiah shows us that when God is at work, God's people come together in unusual unity and commitment cooperation and commitment to fulfill his purposes. Now, as we think about the opposition that we face, as you face, perhaps in your workplace, perhaps in your neighborhood, as you reach out to those around you, as we try to further God's kingdom by loving and sacrificing and articulating the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, opposition is hard and scary And it may cost a lot. And the reason we can suffer opposition is this. We had one who suffered for us. Jesus, who faced the greatest opposition, who faced the greatest persecution, responded in faith. Jesus was mocked and taunted and intimidated. They plotted his murder and they carried it out. And Jesus responded in praying to his Father, Lord, let this cut pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And he responded in action, not prudent action, but imprudent, for the sake of the Father's glory and for us. He went to the cross, bearing our sins, paying for them, and rising again from the dead. Jesus Christ has taken the sting of opposition from us. If you think about a venomous snake who bites you, The venom runs throughout your body and you swell up and you begin to be unable to breathe and you die. And what Jesus has done is he's taken away the fatal poison. He has made it so that opposition hurts. It hurts, but we will live and we will live in eternity. We can face opposition because we had one who suffered once and for all for us. That's how you can put your hope in Jesus. That's how opposition can in fact be an opportunity for us to express our faith in God by prayer and prudent action in cooperation with God's people. So if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus or you're not sure, we would encourage you to trust and put your hope in Jesus, this one who has suffered for you. It will cost you everything and you will gain immeasurably more. Peace unspeakable. Eternal life in a community of faith, not just here in this room, but around the world, who will walk with you through opposition. Trust in Jesus if you have not. 
And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, let us be reminded that we can face opposition because God is in control. God's in control in this world. That's the point of Nehemiah 4. As you're doing God's work, God is in control, and yet He calls for ordinary means to accomplish His purposes. Your prayers make a very real difference in this world. Your actions are absolutely needed, and your cooperation with the body of Christ is vital. And yet God calls for us to trust Him and to take action. William Carey, at the end of his life, had served 41 years in India, and he left an impressive legacy. His team translated the Bible into 34 languages. That's almost unfathomable to me. 34 languages. Compiled dictionaries in Sanskrit, Punjabi, and other languages. He began churches. He established 19 mission stations. He formed 100 rural schools to educate girls because they didn't do that in India at the time. He started the Horticultural Society of India, the study of plants. He served as the professor of Fort William College in Calcutta. He printed the first Indian newspaper. He introduced the concept of the savings bank to poor rural farmers so that they could better their lives. And he fought against widow burning, which was eventually banned, and perhaps inspired thousands, tens of thousands of missionaries to go to the nations and minister for the sake of the lost and for God's glory. And so, was it worth it? Was it worth facing such great opposition? He had God on his side. He was doing God's work, and he entrusted it to God in prayer, prudent action, and gathered God's people to accomplish his purposes. My goal for us here as a church is that we would rise up and build, that we would minister to one another, that we would alleviate suffering in this world for God's glory and extend his kingdom by evangelizing the lost. That's why we exist. That's why you and I are still here, is to make much of God by extending his glory one soul at a time. And so let's end with William Carey's motto. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do that work in our hearts. That as we see your sovereign plan over all of the world, your control, your power, your immeasurable greatness, that in the midst of that we would be freed and empowered to take action and to pray and to gather with your people for your purposes, for your glory that we would not be paralyzed thinking that we can't make a difference, but rather we would trust you with our whole heart and take action for the glory of Christ in this world. We pray that in your precious name. Amen.